Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, November 9th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Vote counting is on the way following Tuesday's U.S. midterm elections. We should get some trends by late this evening, but as to whether we really know which party controls the House or the Senate, that could take longer. International observers monitor U.S. midterm elections. U.N. Rice Chief calls for release of Egyptian activists on dry hunger strike. Climate change poses serious threat to Zambia's development. A Kenyan court orders striking pilots to return to work. The court strongly admonishes the respondent members and especially the Kenya Airways pilots to resume their duties as pilots by 6 a.m. on 9th November 2022 unconditionally. And a Dutch group helps Kenya's Maasai restore drought-hit lands. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. is on the way around the United States following Tuesday's midterm elections. The results will determine which party, Republican or Democrat, will control the Senate or the House of Representatives and thereby shape the last two years of President Joe Biden's first term. I spoke earlier with viewers senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Singh about just what is at stake. Cindy, welcome to Daybreak Africa. Thank you. My pleasure to join you, James. What are the top issues as Americans vote? Well, James, uh, the most recent and big opinion polls and surveys show that the top issue is the economy. You know, people's pocketbook issues, you know, are they able to uh, go to the grocery store and buy what they want and pay for their rent and all of that? Close to 50% of U.S. voters saying the economy is extremely important. And then the second uh, top two issues, about four in 10 Americans attach the same uh, importance to abortion and women's reproductive rights and crime. But uh, for many people outside the United States, the issue of democracy when it comes to the United States is also very important. Do you find that the media has covered this issue enough? That's an excellent question, James. And I have to say, as in many issues here in the U.S., it's kind of a partisan issue and the country is very almost equally divided. Uh, You know, we had the um, January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, an attempt to uh, interrupt the peaceful transfer of power in this country. And we've had the uh, Congressional Committee uh, investigating it. And we've had hearings on that with millions of people watching. But most of those watching have been Democrats. And so, you know, Democrats are paying attention to this issue. As you rightly said, I think people overseas are paying perhaps a bit more attention to these, uh, you know, midterm congressional and statewide and local elections more because they're sort of holding their breath and they want to see, you know, where Americans stand on this issue. And it'll be interesting to see not only if Republicans or Democrats win, but also what type of candidates, because among the Republicans, uh, we do have some who are basically, you know, not vowing to recognize the results of elections. So this is a worrisome thing, as you said, to many people, both here in the U.S. and especially abroad. We hear repeatedly, Cindy, about control of Congress. Why does this matter, after all? President Biden will still be president of the United States no matter what happens on Tuesday. 
Uh, yes, you're right. He will still be president. Of course, he is a Democrat. But as far as what he wants to accomplish, and one of the things is basically, you know, trying to get voting rights, especially for minorities in this country, more protected and uh, to pass laws through Congress. So that's why it's so important, you know, whether Democrats or Republicans hold a majority in both houses of Congress. And it's very, very close right now with Democrats holding a slim majority in the House and Republicans expected to win control of the House on this election day, as usually the president, whoever's in the White House, his party usually takes a big beating at the polls after two years. So that is kind of expected. We'll have to wait and see when the votes are counted. But also the Senate, the Democrats have the smallest of majorities, a one-vote majority at the moment, and Republicans would just need to overturn that one although that comes down to a lot of very close races. Talk about the so-called battleground states. Why are these uh, important? Right. We have uh, most states in the U.S. are either, you know, really majority Republican, like mainly in the South, and then we have some in the Northeast, which are, you know, clear majorities of Democratic voters. And then we have these so-called battleground states, uh, such as Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina, and Ohio, where they go back and forth, depending on the candidates. Sometimes, uh, you know, Democrats are elected, sometimes Republicans are elected. So these are being very closely watched, and also some out west in Arizona and Nevada are battleground states where it's, it's very, very close. And even in the south, Georgia is being closely watched with uh, two African-American candidates facing off there for the Senate race. So, Cindy, when when do you think uh, Americans will be able to know the results? We should get some trends as to whether, you know, there's a so-called red wave, which would be Republicans or or whether maybe Democrats are doing better than what we expected by uh, late this evening. But if as to whether we really know, you know, which party controls the House or the Senate, that could take longer. And it's we shouldn't panic if it does. It's just these, you know, all these, you know, millions of mail-in ballots being counted. Cindy, thank you so much again for joining us on Daybreak Africa. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Cindy Sane, VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent, speaking with us from Washington, D.C. Poll watchers from political parties were not the only groups monitoring ballots being cast in America's midterm elections on Tuesday. Some states also welcome observers from other countries under an international agreement. VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman was in Alexandria, Virginia, where some foreign monitors visited polling stations. At a local arts center serving as a polling place, two British men walked in late Tuesday morning but we're not there to vote. We're observers, and this chap's from the Voice of America. Are we okay to just look around for half an hour? Why don't you go ask a sure. gentleman right there in the... I'll go get him for you. Sure, thank you. thank you. John Alt, the director of Democracy Volunteers, said he and Harry Bush are quick to explain their presence at each of their stops and show their credentials. We always make sure we introduce ourselves because people are quite surprised when two British people turn up at their polling station. A second official grants them permission to take seats along the wall, and they watch as voters' residencies are verified and secret ballots are cast. The international observers are also taking note about whether those who have mobility challenges have unhindered access. This polling station is unique in offering curbside voting for those who roll up but can't make it inside. 
Several voters we spoke with outside expressed mixed feelings about international observers monitoring their neighborhood polling station. Ed Schatz is an environmental lawyer. I suppose it's a little disconcerting that Americans who are supposed to be a bastion of democracy need election observers, but I'd rather have them than not. Here's retired teacher Lori Farnsworth. It kind of, I guess, bolsters our heritage, our democratic heritage, and maybe will encourage us to step up and take pride in democracy. Ed Myers recently retired as an Army officer. I think it's great. I think they should. This is the best country in the world, so... Come and learn from the best, is my opinion. El Rashid Ibrahim is a taxi driver, originally from Sudan. We are the, the top priority of the democracy in the world. We should monitoring the other country, not the other country monitoring us. The Sudanese immigrant adds he is one voter who does not take this right for granted, because in his native country, a struggle is underway to restore democracy. Steve Herman, VOA News, Alexandria, Virginia. The Employment and Labor Relations Court has ordered striking Kenya Airways pilots to resume work unconditionally. At the same time, Justice M. Mwari has barred the airline from taking any disciplinary action against the pilots. Their strike has paralyzed activities at Kenyan airports since Saturday morning when the pilots downed their tools. Mwari Ojiambo reports. I hear what you're saying. Even if you go to jail, it's not a solution right now. Can we obey the court order and go back to work? After a portion poll from Kenya Airways Management and the Kenya Airline Pilots Association, CALPA, Kenya's Employment and Labor Relations Court has ordered pilots to resume work without failure. The pilots had defied the court orders and proceeded to strike on Saturday after failing to resolve a dispute over pension contributions and settlement of deferred pay paralyzing Kenya Airways. While issuing a court order on Tuesday, Justice Anne Maure said that the airline's management and pilots should engage in dialogue to resolve the matter at hand as pilots resume work. On that, the court strongly admonishes the respondents. The respondent members, and especially the Kenya Airways pilots, to resume their duties as pilots by 6 a.m. on 9th November 2022 unconditionally. Kenya Airways on Monday issued threats to the striking pilots and even went ahead to advertise job vacancies for pilots who the company said were sabotaging the airline, which is estimated to be losing at least 2.5 million U.S. dollars daily. Judge Maure has, however, issued an order preventing the airline's management from intimidating the pilots once they return to work. KQ to allow the pilots to perform their duties without harassing them or intimidating them, and especially by not taking any disciplinary action against any of them pending the hearing and determination of these suits. In a letter, the airline's chief executive officer, Alan Kilavuka, said that the company plans to cancel its bargaining and recognition agreements with the pilots' union. Kenya Airways lawyer John O'Haga says the pilots' position was too rigid to have meaningful talks with the airline's management. KQ was not making any concessions until the pilots go to work. That's essentially what we had. So how can KQ negotiate when the pilots have withheld their labor, which is central to an airline. There was no immediate response to the court order from the pilots' union. However, the union's lawyer, Peter Kimani, 
confirmed receipt of the proposal to return to work that was addressed to the airline. The respondent has drafted and circulated its own proposal on a formula to return to work. That proposal has been received by the petitioner. The airline. Kenya Airways has welcomed the court's decision. The company's top management, however, says the path to recovery will be difficult and will require the airline to redouble its efforts to restructure, lower costs, and even increase staff productivity, as well as recover the time, money, and reputation lost. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voices of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Wednesday, November 9th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volkel Twok, is urging Egyptian authorities to immediately release a rights activist whose life reportedly hangs by a threat after a seven-month hunger strike. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. British-Egyptian pro-democracy activist Ala Abdel Fattah has been a thorn in the side of the Egyptian authorities for more than a decade. He has been in and out of prison due to his defense of civil rights and protest against human rights violations by Egyptian security forces. Abdel Fattah currently is serving a five-year sentence on charges of publishing false news. He began a partial hunger strike in April to protest his imprisonment and cruel conditions of detention. A spokeswoman for the UN High Commissioner, Ravina Shamdasani, says Abdel Fattah stepped up his hunger strike on November 1st. And she says he stopped drinking water on November 6th, the first day of COP27, the UN climate conference, which is being held in Sharm el-Sheikh. She says Abdel Fattah's condition is very fragile and his dry hunger strike puts his life at acute risk. We're very concerned for his health um, and there is a lack of transparency as well around his current condition. Um, we understand that his family has not been able to, to contact him um, over, over the past couple of days and, and there are serious concerns about his health. We again stress the need for him to be urgently, immediately released. Um, and for him to receive the necessary medical treatment as soon as possible. Abdel Fattah's sister has flown from Britain to Sharm el-Sheikh to campaign on behalf of her brother's release. Shandasani agrees that COP27 could be a pressure point as all eyes will be riveted on what comes out of the conference. We do hope that this will also be an opportunity um, to improve the human rights situation in Egypt, um, to, to insist upon and to secure the release of those people who have been arbitrarily detained, not only in relation to COP27, but over the years for exercise of their rights to freedom of assembly, freedom of expression. Shamdasani says High Commissioner Turk personally raised the issue of Abdel Fattah's continued imprisonment with Egyptian authorities on Friday. She notes the UN Human Rights Office as well as UN Special Rapporteurs have brought up human rights concerns with the Egyptian government for years. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. 
The Horn of Africa's record drought has dried up wide areas of land and vegetation, left millions of livestock dead, and threatened the survival of both wildlife and people. To reduce the impact of drought, a Dutch conservation group in Kenya is helping ethnic Maasai to restore parched lands through rainwater harvesting. But with a failed rainy season forecast for the fifth time in a row, some are asking whether conservation efforts will be enough. Reporter Juma Mayanga has more from Ambusile, Kenya. God, remember us with rain. Sing a group of ethnic Maasai in a traditional prayer song. The Maasai are herders, so the worst drought in 40 years has been shocking as Kasaide Olesailepi, a Maasai elder, narrates. We have lost nearly all our livestock due to prolonged drought, Sailepi says. As the Maasai, we depend on livestock for livelihoods. That is why we have come together to dig these things, to restore our degraded land and bring back the grass for livestock. The Maasai's Kuku Community Group Ranch is located between Kenya's Savo and Amboseli National Parks on the southern border with Tanzania, a sacred place reserved for grazing during droughts. But the record drought biting the Horn of Africa has not spared the ranch, as Timothy Lenaya of the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust explains. The community here is uh, like totally in a mess, um, especially th- this drought that we are in out now, like 80% of livestock is normal. So you can imagine the problem is even becoming bigger and bigger with time. Dutch conservation group Just Dig It is working with the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust to help the community restore patched lands. They are digging water bands, semi-circular shaped pits that capture rainwater and then reseeding the areas with grass. But they still need rain to get started. Lana Muller, a conservation ecologist, is a senior project manager at Just Dig It in charge of the Kenyan project. You know, if there's some rainfall and the seeds germinate and there's no follow-up rains, the seeds die off um, and then, you know, it your project uh, can, can um, be challenged by that. But fortunately, the environment is so well adapted, even with little rain, the seeds germinate. And that's why we are also really trying to maximize the little rains that we get in the environment. The green pasture is also needed to prevent human-wildlife conflict. Pauline Paul is a resident of Olorica village. She says what causes elephants to invade farms is lack of water and pasture in the park. So if these grasses grow here, the animals will have their food and water in the park. And we will have peace, she adds. Just Dig It says in the past two years, they've built more than 273,000 birds helping to restore nearly 5,000 acres of parched land. Growing and selling hay from grass seed banks has helped employ women, and the trust says the grass restoration is boosting tourism. Lanoi Mitikini was born and brought up in Kukuranj. She now works with the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust 
helping her community restore their ranch. Through such projects, we are able to improve the uh, tourism footprint in the area because we have noticed that uh, wildlife come to the restored sites. As the clouds gather, the Maasai sing for the skies to open and the rains to start coming. Juma Majanga for VOA News, Amboseli, Kenya. Scientists say changes in climate pose challenges to Zambia's ongoing efforts to combat poverty, reduce food insecurity, and sustainably manage natural resources. Climate projections in Zambia include increases in temperature and more extreme weather floods and droughts. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka. As the world grapples with climate change, millions of poor people face increasing challenges such as harmful effects on health, food, water and livelihoods. For the past five years, droughts and floods have become common in Zambia. Weather patterns have changed drastically. Edson Nkonde is the acting director for the Zambia Meteorological Department. He says extreme weather conditions are causing havoc in the country. A lot of areas, for example, receiving over 100 millimeters of rainfall in 24 hours which is quite huge because those are some of the amounts some areas in, in, in southern province receive in a month. And you find that they have received that amount in 24 hours. So the results are flooding, flash floods, damage to, to infrastructure, damage to, to, to dams. One of the biggest drivers of climate change is deforestation, which has reached alarming levels. According to a recent Worldwide Fund for Nature report, Zambia has the highest deforestation rate in Africa and is ranked fifth highest globally. Wood fuel or charcoal is used for energy across the country. Gladys Kabwe is one of the many charcoal traders in Lusaka. She argues that this is the only way she can make a living. What has led me to trade in charcoal is hardship in life. I'm keeping five orphans. I'm also keeping my elderly mother, and I'm a widow. Lino Mwela is an environmental activist. He emphasizes the need to address environmental problems in Zambia. We need to see more of policies that are empowering communities that, that are dependent on uh, wood fuel, supplying of wood fuel to urban areas. We need to see more policies targeting young people, targeting children on the importance and values of uh, protecting our environment, of planting of trees, and so forth. So the most, the biggest thing we need right now is implementation. Policies are there, and we've seen a lot of political will. What we need is more champions. Zambian President Hagainde Hichilema says science has shown that the window to save the global environment is closing. For developing and vulnerable countries like Zambia, which is among the least developed countries with multiple challenges, climate change brings an additional layer of challenges, an additional burden, and aggravates existing ones. Climate change makes it difficult for us to effectively address a number of social economic challenges in order to lift our people from high poverty levels so as to improve their livelihoods. 
World leaders and diplomats framed the fight against climate change as a battle for human survival during opening speeches at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt on Monday. The United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, declared that a lack of progress so far has the world speeding down a highway to hell. I'm Kathy Short for VOA News in Lusaka, Zambia. And that's it for this Wednesday, November 9th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing you will have a wonderful day. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, guest host of Press Conference USA. Tatiana Voroshko from VOA's Ukrainian Service talks with Peter Pomerantsev about the false rhetoric Russia uses to justify its invasion of Ukraine. Pomerantsev compares Moscow's use of propaganda to Nazi Germany's during World War II. He urges the world to condemn this disinformation campaign and the atrocities which flow from it. The dangers of Russian propaganda next on Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.